If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. In, in the series that I've called This Is Us, we've kind of taken a side trip or a little detour in discussing dreams and visions, God-given dreams, God-given visions, and to help us really understand how a vision works, how a dream that God gives us works, we've been looking at Nehemiah. We've kind of scanned through it. We haven't gone from front to back. We've kind of skipped around some. And I am skipping to the end of Nehemiah, but just because I'm skipping to the end doesn't mean that we're done. I am going to come back to Nehemiah. I believe that Nehemiah gives us the best picture of how a dream is birthed, how it becomes reality, and how you get from that birthing to reality in the process. And so I believe that as God has given us a new dream, my hopes in this whole series was that as we examine who we are and what we believe and where we've come from, that God would birth in us a new dream, a new vision, some big God-sized dreams for our community and for this church as we move forward. And so as I begin to cast a vision in the next couple of weeks where I believe God is leading us, we're going to take some of that from Nehemiah. But first I wanted to go to the end to allow you to see exactly how a stronghold, that word I mentioned earlier, begins to take root and how it can grow, even when you least expect it. You know, the passage I read a moment ago, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapon we fight are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, if you want to know what a stronghold is, he explains it in the next verse there in verse 5. For we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, in the Bible, many times, if you look in the Old Testament, a stronghold, just by its simple definition, means a fortified place of refuge, a fortified place of safety. And many times in the Old Testament, the psalmist will use the word fortress and stronghold, talking about God, that God is our stronghold. But here, Paul uses it to describe these thoughts, these ideas, these beliefs that we have that are not backed up by Scripture. Beliefs and part of our systems and pretensions and reasonings and thoughts that that have taken root in our hearts that are not biblical. And once they begin to take root, they begin to grow and they become strongholds. And these strongholds, um, they can be conscious or subconscious. And what I found is that many times we don't even realize something has become a stronghold in our life until it becomes exposed or we become confronted with it. But what Paul is wanting us to understand is these thoughts, these beliefs, these ideas, and, and they may have come from uh, your upbringing. They may have come from your culture or your background or wherever it is you were raised. They may even be part of your belief system that you grew up with, but they're not biblical and they're not scriptural. And over time, we've allowed these strongholds, much like sin, to grow in our hearts and they shape how we view the world. They shape how we act and how we react. And what happens is, as a church, when these strongholds become institutionalized over time, they distort who Jesus is to the lost world. As these strongholds become part of who we are, all of a sudden the message of grace and mercy and love is distorted to those who might need it most. And Paul tells us that the only way you can defeat strongholds, the only way that you can confront strongholds is with the Word of God. 
The only way that they can be revealed is through the Word of God. It, a good sermon's not going to reveal it. I'm not expecting um, what I have to say to reveal a stronghold in your life. But what I am praying is that as we work through this morning, that the Holy Spirit might reveal some areas of your life that you have allowed to become a stronghold. Something that might be something that, that you don't even realize that runs contradictory to the Word of God and it is shaping how you see the world. It's shaping who you are, and it hinders us spiritually. You cannot grow. It's exactly those kind of strongholds that Paul is talking about in Romans 1, where he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. A stronghold is a lie that we've replaced from the Word of God. And many times we do it within the bounds of church. Now, to be honest with you, every one of us in this room have strongholds in our life. Every one of us in this room struggle with areas of our life that we have ignored over time or that we have rationalized or we have excused and just thinking maybe it was just a habit or just a behavior or just something that it was part of who we are. That's always the excuse we give, right? That's just who I am. That's just how I am. But by excusing it or overlooking it, it has grown deep into the roots of our heart and our mind and become a stronghold. And it is influencing the way you see the world, the way you interact with other people, and the way we act as a church. And as we become part of this stronghold and these things begin to grow in the church, what happens is, is it keeps the church from ever looking into its future. In the process, as these strongholds grow and churches begin to compromise their mission, they begin to compromise who they are and what they're called to do. And many can look at the church in America today and we wonder why it's so weak and so neutered. It's because we have allowed strongholds to take hold and to take root for a long period of time. And now we are more religious than we are spirit-filled. The Bible says we have the, the spirit of religion, we have the appearance of power, but we deny the power thereof. We are religious. And in many ways, I think when we look at Nehemiah, he had a greater advantage than we do in the church today. Because when Nehemiah got a vision, it was to build a wall. The good thing for Nehemiah is when he got there to build the wall, there was nothing in its place. He didn't have to tear anything down, he had a clean slate. But today in the church, as we begin to try to revitalize the church and see revival in the church and see the established church turn around to become the church that can reach the world tomorrow, we have all of these strongholds that have become institutionalized walls that before we can ever build for the future, before we can ever see what God is calling us to for tomorrow, we've got to tear down these walls. We've got to tear down these strongholds. We have to root them out from their very core. And that's painful. It's difficult. And it's easier for us just to keep doing the same thing the way we've always done it and hope that it changes. You know, I, I was tempted when I began to look at this message to go back to last week. If you weren't here last week, I talked about the Princess Bride and I talked about getting out of the pit of despair. And I was very tempted to call this message Scaling the Cliffs of Insanity, which is another Princess Bride um, metaphor, but I decided not to use it because that's, that's kind of how we are in the church. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. 
And in the church, what we do is, is we just put band-aids on our wounds or we just ignore what's going on at the root cause of our problems and we just keep going on hoping that if we keep doing the same things, it's going to be different. It isn't. And over time, we begin to see people ask, well, why in the world do 2,000 churches close their doors every year? Because we've allowed institutional strongholds to become barriers to our future. And for any church that is, is over 10 years old in the United States of America, for us to become the church that's going to reach the next generation, your grandkids and your grandkids' grandkids, if we are going to continue to be a light shining in a dark culture, then we are going to have to begin to tear down some of these institutional strongholds that have taken root in our very core. And it starts with us. Because those institutional strongholds started with us. They came from us. They were a part of us. And, and what I find is it's easier to just ignore it than to deal with it. And don't we do the same thing in our own personal lives? Don't we rationalize our sin and we deal with the same sin over and over and over again and we wonder why it comes up and we act surprised whenever we struggle with that same sin? It's insanity. Until you begin to change your behavior, until you begin to change your thought principle, nothing is going to change. And Paul tells us the only way that change can be brought is when it's revealed and confronted by the truth of the Word of God. And so this morning, I'm praying that the truth of God's Word will illuminate strongholds in your life. That you'll begin to understand and see some things that maybe you didn't even realize was a stronghold that was keeping you from being who God's calling you to be, keeping you from being who God wants you to be, and ask God to remove it from you and ask God to reveal it and tear it out. And that we as a church would be honest with things that have become strongholds in the body of Christ that we have got to tear down if we want to be who God's called us to be. Now before that can ever happen, we've got to understand what is a stronghold. We've got to name them. You've got to identify them. And so this morning, I'm going to point out a couple of things that I think are institutional strongholds that are in every church in America that we have got to begin to address. And I, I probably could have come up with 15 or 20. Um, I just picked four. Four that I think are at the root of many of our problems of why we are not being and seeing the church that Jesus Christ has called us to be, the church that we're seeing experience revival around the world. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about two more, and those two next week are the most relevant that I think are holding us back, the most um, direct. And so if today makes you uncomfortable, don't come back next week, okay? If, if you hear what I'm going to say this morning and, you, and your spirit rises up within you and says, I, I just don't like it, then you won't want to be here next week because I believe the Holy Spirit's going to set some of us free and we're going to be able to move on to some new ways of God moving in the church and moving in the body of Christ. Now, to do all that, I wanted you first to see how Nehemiah dealt with a stronghold and compare that to how we deal with strongholds. So if you have a Bible, Nehemiah 13, and it is the end of the book of Nehemiah, and and I'm going to kind of catch you up with where we are, but I want you to see this story. Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Before all of this, Eliashab, who was the high priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of God. He was put in charge of the, the storerooms in the temple. 
And he was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of the grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. That's Nehemiah talking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil things that Eliashab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased. And so I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room, and I gave orders to purify the rooms. Then I put them back into the equipment in the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now, I read that fast, and as you were reading that, and if you have your order, it's in your order, and you can see that. You say, well, what, what was the gist of the story? Well, by Nehemiah 13, they had finished the wall. The wall was completed. Nehemiah's dream, his vision had become a reality, and God was blessing. In Nehemiah chapter 8, not only is there a blessing of protection of the wall, there is a revival that breaks out. They begin to say, listen, we are, we are physically protected, but spiritually we are not protected. And so they begin to call out to God, and revival falls, and they turn back to God as a people. And Jerusalem begins to grow. They begin to have people coming back to Jerusalem. And they had an incredible worship time, an incredible celebration. And the temple is getting rebuilt and everything is good. But Nehemiah, if you remember, if you've been with us in Nehemiah chapter 1, when he came to Jerusalem, he told the Persian king he was working for, Artaxerxes, I'm not going to stay there. I will come back. And so after all that Nehemiah's dream had become a reality, Nehemiah goes back to Susa to serve in the court of Artaxerxes. And he's there eight or ten years. And then he decides he wants to retire. It's time for him to, to give up his job, and he wants to retire back in Jerusalem. So he comes back to Jerusalem ten years later, and the first thing he finds when he gets there is that the high priest, the one that's supposed to serve God, has allowed Tobiah... And if you remember, if you've been with us, Tobiah was one of the guys I called the Three Stooges. He was the Ammonite. He was one of the ones who started throwing stones, cursing and mocking the children of God while they were trying to build the wall. He was one of the ones that said, you'll never get the wall finished and the wall doesn't need to get built. He is the one who was working behind Nehemiah's back. He hated the people of Israel. He hated the God of Israel. And Nehemiah shows back up in Jerusalem, and this very enemy of God has been allowed to move into the house of God. This person who does not like the people of God is living in the very house that represents God's home. And so when Nehemiah comes in, there's no discussion, there's no debate, there's no committee meeting. Nehemiah says the only way that you deal with something that has taken root, that is evil in the house of God, is throw it out. So he goes up and he begins to throw out the window everything that was to buy us. And not just throw it out, you've got to go and then purify everything that that evil touched. You see, the only way to deal with strongholds is to call them out. The only way to deal with sin in your life is to call it out. Admit it. Confront it. And not play games with it. You know, it sounds mean. Oh, Nehemiah was so mean. Tobiah had this place to live and he comes back and Nehemiah... No, that's, that evil has to get out. 
There's no dancing with evil. There's no playing with heresy. There's no allowing strongholds to move, interacting within your life. You've got to root it out from its very core, get rid of it, and then replace it with the things of God. That's what Nehemiah does. And for you and I to begin to confront strongholds in our life, not only do you have to reveal what the strongholds are, but you've got to allow God to come in and purify and cleanse your thinking from the thinking that you had before. Because strongholds always start in the mind. That's why he says we come against every thought, every pretext in 2 Corinthians that goes against the Word of God. So what are these strongholds? Well, as I said, I'm just going to give you four, and I'm going to do it quickly. But I pray that as I give you each of these strongholds, I promise you, your first reaction is going to be, that's not my problem. That's not me. Or matter of fact, probably some of your reaction is going to be, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They need to hear that this morning. (laughs) But I want you to be honest. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and see if any of these ideas, these thoughts, these pretexts that are not backed in Scripture have become a stronghold in your life. Because I believe that in many churches, they are barriers, they are strongholds, and they are keeping us from growing. And the thing about a stronghold is it is a generational curse. Because what happens if you struggle with a stronghold is you will pass that along to your kids and to your kids' kids and some of you this morning. The answer for you is to root out that stronghold to keep it from becoming something that your kids have. Four strongholds. I'll give them to you. They're pretty easy to remember, pretty easy to understand, pretty hard for us to digest. The first one's the easiest. I believe there is a stronghold of denominationalism in the church today. A stronghold of denominationalism. Now, what is denominationalism? It is that name that is on our churches that divides us according to our belief system. And denominations started out as a great thing. They were a way for us to divide according to the differences that we believed according to Scripture. And we have all types of Christian denominations. And they were great because they allowed us to worship differently. If you wanted a more traditional, liturgical type of worship, you could go to this denomination. And if you wanted a a more emotional type of service, you could go to this denomination. And if you believed more in the Spirit, you went here. More in the truth, you went here. But what happened over time is instead of allowing us to be diverse, they became barriers and walls to unifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now instead of being all one body of Christ, we have divided ourselves according to denomination and we judge one another and we look down on one another and we criticize one another about who loves Jesus the most. And we've allowed those things to become idols in our churches People say, and listen, I'm not telling you we're not going to be Baptists. I spent a whole four weeks at the start of this service talking about why I think being Baptist is important and what it means to be a Baptist. But what I'm telling you is that is not how we identify ourselves in this church. We are Christian evangelical who happen to be Baptist in the way that we do church, in the way that we do missions. But what's happened in in churches all across this country is we've elevated our denomination above Christian and evangelical. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Church of God. And we've allowed those things to become cudgels to beat others and to judge others and to look down on others. And we automatically prejudge other denominations. Somebody says, well, I'm I'm Presbyterian. We automatically have something in our mind. I, I meet people every week when they ask. 
And I talk to them and tell them I'm a pastor. And once they get past the idea that I could be a pastor, I don't know what about me scares people into thinking, I don't know if it's because I don't look like a pastor or whatever. After I've talked with them, I say, I'm a pastor. They say, where? I'm at First Baptist Church. And you can see those that automatically have a preconception about what it means to be a Baptist. That's bad. That's wrong. That has separated us. We've got to tear down those walls of denominationalism to where we begin to understand. Here's the truth. I don't care whether you grew up Episcopalian or Methodist or Presbyterian or Church of God or Lutheran or Baptist. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was born of a virgin, who died on a cross so that you and I might be saved, if you believe that He is the only way to salvation and that through grace by faith alone are you saved, you're welcome here. You can be a part of what God's calling us to. You know, the thing I tell people all the time, because we have people, a lot of you, you, you know, because I, I know a lot of you that are Presbyterians and, and, and Lutheran and Methodist, and we even have some Whiskeypalians that are here, and I don't hold that against you. And you come and you say, now, Pastor, I know this is a Baptist church. Some of you that are seasoned, I know this is a Baptist church. I, I'm not Baptist. Well, praise the Lord. We might not need any more Baptists. We're full of Baptists. We need somebody with a new vision and a new dream. You see, we have got to move beyond these barriers. There were once good things, but now they have separated us. Denominationalism has become a stronghold in the church, and it's got to be torn down. The second thing, and if that one was was easy for you to deal with, this one might be hard for you to stomach. The second stronghold that we find in the established church today is sexism. And I'm going to call it patriarchy. And I'm going to spend a whole lot of time in a couple of weeks talking about this. But let me just say this. Somehow we have allowed a proof text of Paul's specific admonition to Timothy about a specific situation that took place in Ephesus with the women who were getting saved coming out of the temple of Artemis. And we have made that passage a universal belief. And we have totally ignored the rest of Scripture, the rest of Jesus' example, the rest of Jesus' teaching, and what it means to be a new covenant church. And by doing so, we have discriminated and disenfranchised half of the body of Christ because of their gender. Sexism, patriarchy. You can look back, and I believe we will look back on history, and we'll be embarrassed as the body of Christ that we have disqualified people according to their call and gifts because of their gender. You know, God doesn't call you according to your gender. He calls you according to your giftedness. And the Bible says in the New Testament that when Jesus broke the curse of the Old Covenant, under the New Covenant, there is no division, separation, no man, woman, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, Greek, anything else, that we are all one part of the body of Christ. And we came out of the Reformation and instead of getting rid of that old idea of spiritual authority and that somehow a priest or a preacher has more authority than anybody else and we have elevated it to the point that we have said you and only you types of people can serve God in this way or serve God in that way. That's not scriptural and it has to do with the understanding of spiritual authority. And it is a, it is a stronghold in the church that if we don't tear it down, It'll never become the church that God's called us to be in the future. I can't imagine how much further we would be as a body of Christ if we'd allowed women to serve in the body of Christ for the last 500 years. 
where we would be in sharing the gospel. Now, I know some of you are saying, Pastor, I'm just not comfortable with that. That's okay. I wasn't either. I remember in my first seminary class, this girl came and sat next to me, and I thought, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> it's a preaching class. Maybe you misunderstood. But we cannot confuse a cultural issue with a scriptural issue. Just because we're uncomfortable culturally and we grew up in the South and you never heard a woman stand in the pulpit and pray or stand in the pulpit and teach doesn't mean that it is something okay for us to justify and rationalize. I can remember reading about uh, Ann Graham Lotz who had gone to speak at a conference in Dallas in the 90s. And, and let's just be honest, uh, Billy Graham's mantle of preaching, it, it moved to Ann uh, I love Franklin, and I think he's good, but Ann is the preacher in the family. If you've ever, I'm sorry, I'm in a Baptist church. She is the teacher in the family, right? That's what we call it. She was asked to speak at a conference. It's, it, she was speaking at a conference in Dallas, and, and this is in the 90s. She stands up to begin to teach the Word of God, and a group of pastors stood up in the middle of the conference and turned their backs on her. Now, how honoring and glorifying to God is that? You see, we have got to move past this idea that God only selects certain people to do certain things. You say, oh, but pastor, didn't Paul say in, in Timothy and Titus that you had to be the husband of one wife if you were going to be a preacher? Paul was not giving a list of qualifications. He was talking about your character, talking about integrity. We ignore the fact that the very first people, when, when did the old covenant die? The old covenant died the moment Jesus walked out of that tomb. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb and entered into a new covenant that was no longer bound by the law, who did he say, go and share my message with? Women. He didn't say, listen, I got something to say. Go get Peter and Paul and tell them, or go get Luke, go get May, tell them, come out. I, I, I can't talk to you guys because you're a woman. And in Jewish culture, I can't talk to women. No, he said, listen, women, go. Paul had women deacons. Peter had women teachers. Apollos, who probably wrote and helped write the book of Romans, was trained by women. Somewhere along the way, we've lost our focus and, and we've lost what it means to trust in the Word of God. Now, I'm going to talk a lot more about this later on, so if that makes you uncomfortable, send me your emails, but, I, but just listen. Don't give up on what God's Word is saying. I believe we'll never see the power of God fall on our churches moving into the future until we tear down the walls of patriarchism and patriarchy and sexism. And I want you to listen to me, ladies, young women. If you believe God is calling you to missions, to ministry, to serve God, and someone told you you can't because of your gender, don't listen to them, listen to God. Because the power of God is on your life. Now, if that one got you a little uncomfortable, this one's really going to make you uncomfortable. Denominationalism, sexism, the third one is racism. There's a stronghold of racism in the churches in America. It's been said before that the most segregated hour in America is at 11 o'clock. And I don't think that pleases God. Now I know we make excuses, right? That's just the way it is. That's the way everybody wants it. It's the way it's supposed to be. People like to, to be with people of their own color and people of their own culture and people of their own backgrounds. Why is it that that's only true in America? I went and preached at a church in Germany. They had 24 languages 
spoken in that church. And while I preached, there were 24 different interpreters taking what I was preaching and speaking it in their language so that those people from all types of backgrounds and all types of color could be in one place. Why is it only in America where we think it's okay that we segregate ourselves according to color and race? That's not what the body of Christ looks like. All of us in this room grew up singing the song, Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. The older and older we got, the more we begin to say, but not in my church. I believe the church of the future is not going to look and see how we are divided by skin color or background, but how we are united by the red blood of Jesus Christ that flows through our veins. And we have got to begin to tear down the walls of race. Listen, the Southern Baptist as an institution was founded on racism. The Southern Baptist Convention broke off in 1845 because they wanted to be able to send missionaries with slaves overseas, and the Northern Baptists said no, so they broke off. And it took the Southern Baptists 140 years to finally repent of the sin of slavery. And say, well, that was an old sin. I remember in the 1970s hearing and seeing pastors in the pulpit using the Word of God to justify segregation. I remember in the late 90s, I was serving in Shreveport, Louisiana, and we had a student revival. All the churches came together, had a student revival. God moved in incredible ways. We saw over 300 students come to know Jesus Christ. It was an unbelievable move of God in lives of students. And we all went back to our churches, and one of my good friends who I'd gone to college with went back to his well-established Baptist church, large church there in town. He had nine or ten students get saved, and they were going to baptize them. That was probably more that they would baptize in that church than the last ten years combined. Had three African-American kids that were friends with those students that had gotten saved that wanted to be baptized in that church. They had a deacons meeting in 1994 and decided that it would probably be better if those African-American kids got baptized in their own church instead of their church. It is a stronghold. How did it get to be a stronghold in the church? Because it's a stronghold in some of our hearts. We had to be honest, we judge people according to their skin color and their background and their economic background. It has to be rooted out. You say, well, what's the answer, Pastor? I don't know. I don't know what it's going to make it change except that it has to start in the home and it it has to start in our heart and we've got to create a community that doesn't recognize color. That if somebody that is Hispanic, if somebody is African American, if somebody is Chinese or Asian or whatever it is, comes into the church, that's not what we notice. We notice that there's a new person wanting to worship with us that's there. We've got to begin to tear down the barriers and the walls of racism. Denominationalism, sexism, racism. And the last one will probably surprise you, but I think it's probably one of the greatest strongholds we see in the church today. And that's called ageism. For the first time in the history of the church, there are five distinct generations worshiping together. Five very distinct groups of people that are all trying to meet under one roof and be the body of Christ. What are those five groups? Those before 19, born before 1940, 78 and older. We call it the greatest generation. 
Those that came after them from the 40s to the 60s, you'd be 58 to 78. We call them the baby boomers. 1960 to 1980, 38 to 58, we call them the baby busters. Those born from 1980 to 1995, 26 to 38, we call them Generation X because we didn't know what else to call them. (laughs) Those born from 1995 to now, we call those millennials. And each of those five groups have a distinct worldview according to the way they were raised and according to how they grew up. They have distinct taste. They have distinct points of view. They learn differently. They see things differently. And what should be an incredible strength for the church that we now have a, a five generations that can grow together and build together and lean on each other and learn from each other, it has become a brick and barrier between the church and each other. All we do is, is we discuss and argue the older generations think the younger generations don't care and the younger generations think the older generations are out of touch. And just because my tastes lean one way and your tastes lean another doesn't mean that I'm not important or you're not important. And so what we've done in the church is we've segregated. We've self-segregated. Our church is looking to reach millennials. Our church is looking to reach baby boomers. Our church is... It's not the church. This is, a, this is a gift. It's not something that should be a battle. It's something that we should be celebrating. The Bible says that the old are supposed to take and nurture the young and minister to the young and teach the young and the young are supposed to respect the old and help invigorate them as they move into that series of life. We're supposed to be building and building a chain and a bridge so that the greatest generation is reaching the boomers and it's reaching the busters and it's reaching Generation X and the millennials are coming along seeing all that God is doing. All the wisdom in the church and instead all we argue about is how we worship, when we worship, where we worship, what we wear to worship. Because when I grew up we did it this way and when I grew up we did it this way and when I grew up this is how I liked it. It's time we started realizing that it's more than me and it's about the kingdom. And churches are splitting and they're dying. We've got to link arms and come together. We've got to learn that it's about His kingdom. It's about His people. It's about His church. All ages, all denominations, all races, all genders coming together to be the body of Christ. Do you realize, and I'm almost done, just hang with me for a second. Do you realize that those four things that I just mentioned should all be the greatest strengths of the body of Christ? Every one of those things, that should be what we put on our advertising. We we have people from all denominations are welcome and all races are welcome and all ages and all genders. You come and you can serve. This is a place that in our diversity we find power. But instead, churches today have used it to separate and divide. There's no power there. The thing I love about Nehemiah is when Nehemiah decided it was time to build the wall back in Nehemiah chapter 4, it was everybody. Priest and workers, all races and colors, all nationalities, all types of group, all types of ages, and they worked shoulder to shoulder to accomplish what God was calling them to do. And I'm telling you, for the church to move into the next century, for the church to continue to be vital as it is for this country and for this city and for this state, we have got to come together and link arm in arm, and we've got to get rid of these barriers and these walls and these strongholds that are holding us back. 
God expects us to do much better. This is the bride of Christ. Now I know, as I said when I started, some of you, your reaction, amen. I mean, some of you, I heard you, amen. Amen, I'm glad. Some of you are like, that's right. You're right, preacher. Not me. I don't have a problem with any of that. You're right on. Well, let me ask you this. If next week you showed up at church and I shared with you that filling in for me in the pulpit was a female African-American Lutheran, (laughs) full robes, she was holding the Book of Common Prayer, that was who was going to share with me. I wonder how many of you would hesitate. I wonder how many. Let's be honest. I'm just speaking your heart. Well, how many of you all of a sudden I would say, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? She's lost. Baptist church out there. What's she doing in those robes? Doesn't she know we, we worship this way? What if next week you showed up and I had a Hispanic college student that came from a charismatic background that was wearing skinny jeans that were ripped and a V-neck shirt and had long hair and tattoos, and I said, he's going to share today. He was sitting up here on stage. Some of you would walk in and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's be honest. What if you walked in next Sunday and sitting beside me, I said, listen, here's who I have sharing. It was a 90-year-old retired Southern Baptist pastor that was wearing a white three-piece suit. (laughs) I'm just trying to be honest. He said, that wouldn't bother me, Pastor. Would you come in? without prejudice, or without being preoccupied, without looking at that and being hesitant? Would you be excited to see what God was going to say through the, the Lutheran African-American woman or the charismatic Hispanic college student or through the, the retired Baptist pastor? Would you come in and excited? I mean, let's be honest. If I told you this week that that was going to happen next week, some of you would stay home. If you can't say amen, say ouch. It's a stronghold. It's a stronghold that is subconscious for many of us and we don't even realize it. That it doesn't matter what they look like, who they are, or their background. If they come with a testimony of God's power and God's ministry, that we should always be excited and welcoming. These strongholds have hindered us for too long. And I'm telling you that in this body, we are coming against it. We live in a day today, let's be honest, in America, where everything we hear is about dividing us. We're divided by race, by economics, by political party, by age, by nationality. As the body of Christ, we are called to rise above all of that. We are called to find that which unites us, and that is Jesus Christ. And we stand on that. And we celebrate that. And that makes us, no matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, white, African American, male or female, Baptist or Episcopalian, that makes us family. That's the body of Christ that will make a difference tomorrow. Let's pray.